So a just a basic question, what are you doing right now? <laughs> what are you doing right now? I, I, I know you're sitting. There are so many things you could be doing right now instead of gathering here for worship today. Uh, there's certainly more productive things you could be doing. Who doesn't have a little fall cleanup to do, a little yard work, uh, dishes in the sink or clothes to be folded? Uh, there's hikes you could be taking or mountain biking runs. Sorry, Joe, don't leave yet. Just, you, you could be doing all of these types of things. And that's just the personal stuff. Like, there's a freaking hurricane going on right now, a tropical storm, excuse me, but a typhoon over in the South China Sea right now. There are all kinds of ways we could be more productive than sitting here serving the world. There's a homeless crisis. I mean, yes, around the world, but in our own backyard. Like, what good does it do us to just sit here for an hour and a half on Sundays? Now, I'm sorry if that made some of you feel uncomfortable because now you can't get the to-do list out of your brain, but I kind of wanted us to feel a little uncomfortable in a good way. What we do by gathering for worship together once a week is countercultural. It ought to feel weird. It's also counterintuitive. The latest badge of honor in our culture, experts say, is busyness. That is the leading badge of I am somebody if my calendar is full and I'm busy. Take the Washington Post article, How Busyness Became a Bonafide Status Symbol, written by Jenna McGregor. She writes, in a recent Harvard Business Review article based on a forthcoming paper in the Journal of Consumer Research, it is argued that busyness is the actual way people signal their importance. And marketers are actually picking up on this. So the, uh, there's a Cadillac commercial out there that you know, it says how cool the car is and it's the cool character of driving the car and it says you could have all this and still only take two weeks of vacation a year. Like, because you didn't take much vacation and you were busy, you can have a car like this. It's a, it's a uniquely American, or at least North American, ideal. People in Italy, for example, still see their amount of leisure time as equating to their social status. So the more leisure time a person in Italy has, the higher their social status is viewed uh, in the culture. But in North America, it seems that the more hours you put in at work and the less vacation time you take, the more management takes notice of you and acknowledges you. The study from Harvard even goes on to show that many American employers value workers that put in more time in the office higher than those who might put less time in the office but actually produce better products or more products depending on, on the case. That's ridiculous. That's, also, that's not only not rational, but it costs consumers and companies millions of dollars every year. My point is that we need to have our eyes opened we live in a culture that values busyness and efficiency to the point that we've implicitly turned our busyness into a function of our self-worth. We've turned our, our work ethic into a mechanism of salvation, choosing to trust what we can do rather than trusting the one who makes all things new. Now, here's the weird thing about hard work and Christianity. They go together. They're not mutually opposed. Christianity is a movement that has birthed people doing significant action. So the second century church, for example, helped abolish slavery, re rescue slaves out of North Africa. Uh, the early church was instrumental in combating child abuse 
and, and um, exposing babies out, out in the wilderness to like natural abortion type things. Uh, the church started the first hospitals and provided the framework, funding, and thinkers uh, for systems of formal education and, and scientific method and, and music and the arts. Faith in Jesus has historically led people to work hard to change the world for the better. But at its core, and here's the point, at its core, biblical faith is not a faith of busyness. It is a faith in God who calls us beloved, who calls you daughters and sons, who invites us into the good rhythms of work and worship and rest and restoration. Wherever we see significant, lasting work done through the church, it is not busyness, but significant, sustained life of worship that's behind it. So Mother Teresa, arguably one of the most influential Christian people, or just people of the 20th century, her hard work and deep compassion helped change the lives of millions of people throughout India and the rest of the world. She must have been busy, we might think. She worked hard. Sometimes she's working in Calcutta, and then she gets on a plane to London or Washington or the Vatican to meet with heads of states and leaders who can help further her cause. She worked hard, but Mother Teresa would rarely say that she was busy. Mother Teresa started every day with three hours of prayer. When I get stressed and busy and feel the to-do list growing, the last thing I want to do is pray. I want to start checking things off the list. Some of the greatest missionary movements in church history were started at prayer gatherings, college students gathering together, or local churches in their worship gatherings. Jesus chose the 12 disciples after a night of prayer. Paul and Barnabas are sent to evangelize the Gentiles after a worship service. Last week, we started a new series in the book of Samuel. And the story takes place after the exodus of Moses. He delivers the people out of slavery. They go into the wilderness. And it takes place after Joshua brings that people into the promised land. And it takes place near the end of the book of Judges. The situation is bleak, sinful, leaderless, empty religion, and corrupt priesthood. The thrice-repeated line and the last sentence of the book of Judges reads, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It is in this setting that the book of Samuel focuses, zooms in on one particular family, a man named Elkanah and his wife Hannah, who we are told is in deep despair because she was unable to have children of her own while her rival, Elkanah's other wife, Penina, had lots of children and liked to rub it in Hannah's face. In the story, Israel seems hopeless and so does Hannah. Both Israel and Hannah need a miracle, a savior from outside the mess that they're in. And in the midst of Israel's corruption and Hannah's grief, Hannah still chooses to join her husband in attending a festival 19 miles away from home, and it is there that she cries out to the Lord for a son. She believes that she's been heard, and though nothing has changed to her body or to her outward situation, she leaves changed on the inside. She's at peace. And that is where we pick up the story this evening. I invite you to stand if you're able. And we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 19 
through 2.11. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Then the man, Elkanah, went up with his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her and a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. They slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli and said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I've also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's dedicated to the Lord. And he worshiped there. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you. Boast no more so, the very, so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. And the barren, even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive, he brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes the poor and, uh, and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of the godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. The word of the Lord. All right, maybe seated. Long section. It's broken up into two the passage is broken up into two main sections. The second is this prayer, often referred to as Hannah's song. And the first section is a narrative piece that firmly roots Hannah's song in historical context. As the story goes, Hannah woke up early, worships God before beginning this 19-mile journey back home from Shiloh to her house in Ramah. After an undesignated amount of time, Hannah and Elkanah are sexually intimate, and the Lord opens her womb. 
Just a little side note, 19 verses leading up to this sexual act, and it gets all of one verse. I'll just leave that there for you. The point is, the Lord has provided a son for Hannah. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, this son is going to be a significant leader and part of God's plan, not only to redeem Israel, but the whole world. Hannah probably names her son Samuel because Samuel sounds like a Hebrew phrase that, that goes before I have, because I have asked. Samuel's name sounds like the Hebrew phrase, because I have asked. His name is a reminder that God has heard and answered her prayer. Samuel is a living reminder then of, of God's faithfulness to Hannah and to us because now we're reading about it. When the worship festival at Shiloh comes around again the next year after Samuel is born, Elkanah and his family are ready to hit the road to go worship again, but Hannah decides to stay back home until Samuel is weaned. Now, in the ancient Near East, just as in many cultures today, uh, children were often weaned until they were three, three and a half years old. But when it finally comes time, Hannah brings Samuel and the appropriate sacrifice to the tabernacle in Shiloh. There she reconnects with Eli, the priest, and dedicates Samuel to the Lord. She's come to Shiloh to leave her only son behind so he can serve the Lord and be a priest. From our vantage point, this part of the story is so foreign, it's almost hard to believe. Many parents I know have a hard time sending their kid away to one week of summer camp, and that's when they're seven or eight years old. But Samuel must be around three or four years old, and Hannah drops him off at a man that she's met once, maybe twice, and and he's never met. It's like a a priestly boarding school for toddlers, and she drops him off. And add to the fact that this is Hannah's only son, the gift from God, the one she'd cried out for, and you got to ask yourself, why? Why does she do this? Someone from our Wednesday night Bible study raised a great question. If Elkanah, Hannah's husband, is from this Levitical line, the line of the priests, then why didn't her oldest son from Panina, his other wife, also have to serve the priesthood? How come he wasn't chosen? Well, scholars don't know for sure, but I kind of have a hunch. And I think that it's because in this season of time, at the end of the book of Judges, when people were doing what was right in their own eye, and not the priesthood was corrupt, and the temple was corrupt, and I I wonder if Elkanah and Panina just decided not to do it. Nobody else was doing it, and which makes Hannah's reaction, Hannah's sacrifice of her son, even more exceptional. But, But an original reader would think, Hannah, what she's doing is not exceptional. What she was doing is actually being obedient What she was doing is what every Levitical family should have done with their oldest child. The narrative section is so important because it roots this story, the song, everything in history. It reminds us that God works through people, people named Elkanah and Hannah, who lived in a small town called Ramah. They were real people with real grief and real joy, And there was nothing special about their social status or their intelligence. They're average. They could be anyone. They could be you or me. God works in and through people. But I want to be very clear that God doesn't use people. Sometimes when we use churchy language, sometimes we say, uh, God used me to do such and such, or God used this person to do uh, X or Y or Z. Uh, But... uh, 
I, I don't think that that's correct theologically. I don't think God uses people. I don't think God was thinking to himself, you know, I, I want to send a faithful prophet to advance salvation history. What I really need is an incubator. I need a womb. So, oh, there's this lady named Hannah. I'm just going to throw a kid in there somehow to get my plan done. I, I don't think the narrative will let us get away with theology like that. <laughs> Hannah is a real woman who really cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard her and answered her prayer. Her deliverance from barrenness was part of Israel's deliverance, but she's not merely just an oven for Samuel so that God could get his plan done. And I think that God wants to work through you and I too, but he doesn't just want to use you. You're not a thing to God. You have a particular story a particular personality. You, you inhabit a particular place in the world and a particular time in history. And, and it's all important because God loves you particularly. Not despite of you or not because of what he can get out of you. He loves you. Now what's fascinating is how Hannah is able to be obedient in this story. If we go back to our opening illustration about busyness and compare Hannah to the American uh, mentality of get-or-done-ism or whatever you want to call it, we see the stark contrast between Hannah and the typical American dream. The one thing that she really does, or the only thing that she really does that's productive in the sense of getting stuff done is that she's part of this salvation history. She dedicates her son to the Lord. She actually does that. But before she does that, before she acts, Hannah is acted upon. Before she acts, God acts. Before she does something productive, she does something that the world today views as unproductive, something that you're doing right now. Hannah gathered for worship and prayer. You see, when your heart is moved by God, then you can be moved in the power of God, and what you, what you do will be animated by God and, and successful in God. Notice the, the steps that Hannah takes before God acts powerfully in her life. Back when she believed that her situation was hopeless, she showed up to worship. And I can't imagine that Hannah felt like taking a 19-mile journey by foot with her rival, Panina, and all of her brood of brats, and Panina constantly saying, at least I can give my man kids. The Bible says that Panina would torment Hannah over her barrenness. I, I can't imagine that Hannah looked forward to going to worship in Shiloh. And I, and I can't imagine that Hannah's heart was often filled with joy on those journeys. Or that she felt like singing the songs in church when she got there. In fact, we know that she was full of sorrow and she cried out to the Lord. See, worship isn't just something we do when we feel good or, or when it comes flowing out of the heart. Worship is our authentic response to our situation in light of who God is and what he's done. Real worship is honest. True worship for Hannah, like many of us, will sometimes include gushing praise and joy, but sometimes it will be heartfelt cries of pain or even anger at God, or anger at our situation. But the key is participating in the community of worship. That's what Hannah does. If Hannah stays home 
Just like you or I, she's, temp- she's probably tempted to just stew in her own anger and misery. But by going to Shiloh and participating in the worship service at the tabernacle, she then participates in the liturgy, in the prayers, in the songs, in the sacrifices, in the scriptures. When you come to church, even when you don't feel like it, you'll be exposed to the prayers and the songs and the scriptures, both read and preached. You'll be, have the opportunity to participate in the sacrament, a thin place where we know we can meet Christ even when we're not feeling like it. And sometimes it's the worship liturgy and community that provide the structure for our lives when everything else seems like it's chaotic and there's zero structure in our lives. When the world feels like it's caving in, we can come into this place and know that we don't have to have what it takes. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, that there are ruts, wagon ruts for us to walk in that have been put down by centuries of faithfulness to Jesus. The structure gives us then space for us to hear and receive the one who we came to worship in the first place. So worship gave Hannah a constructive place to pour out her heart, and by the end of the narrative section, Hannah is once again worshiping God. But this time, it was with a genuine heart of joy and expectation. So she, at the end of the narrative, she sort of then praise a song to the Lord. It's as if it burst out of her soul like a broken pipe or a fountain. And while the song, Hannah's song, is original to Hannah, it's built using stock metaphors and imagery. Consider this ridiculous example. So part of my sabbatical, our family took a road trip to Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Park, and Corey and I knew we'd have days in the car with the kids. So we did, we did listen to the whole 19 hours of Fellowship of the Ring, Dad score, Yep, Uh, but we also knew that they couldn't just sit through 19 hours straight of Fellowship of the Ring. Um, Well, Stella probably could have, but the rest of them, yeah. So anyway, we we allowed them to make Road Trippin' 2018 mix. They got to contribute songs to the Road Trippin' mix, right? So, um, you know, a little... Taylor Swift and things that you have to endure uh, when you have three daughters and all that. And um, one of the songs that they chose is Macklemore's Marmalade. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating Macklemore. And if you do go listen to Marmalade, make sure you listen to the kid-friendly version. It's got a, you don't want the explicit version. So we had the kid-friendly version. And I bring it up because the kids like it for two reasons. One is it's got some strong bass lines, um, but also because it pulls together a bunch of pop culture references that, that they find really funny. Like they just giggle every time it says they're, you, know, you switch into Geico or he talks about Toy Story 3 or, or whatever. Um, Macklemore wrote the song and he gets his particular message across. Nothing to build your life upon, by the way. Um, and he builds this song with stock images from film and TV and his location, Seattle native, right? Seattleite. Uh, politics, Donald Trump's in there, other musicians and other cultural customs. And he, he, he builds this song that's his song with stock images and things that you could, like if you, you have to watch TV or hear a Geico commercial to know what it means he's switching to Geico, right? Like he pulls all of this stuff together. Hannah is not a rapper or a pop culture musician, but she is a worshiper of the living God. And so she, when she's writing her song, is drawing from stock images, phrases from Psalm 113 or Psalm 75, the Psalms of Moses and Miriam. And she employs these images to communicate her own thoughts and feelings and worship. 
In this song, she names feelings of devotion to the Lord. She says, my heart exalts the Lord. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there's no one besides you. She praises God for what he's done. Even the barren gives birth to seven. Now, did, did Hannah have seven kids? No. Seven is a number of completeness. So she's drawing on that stock imagery. And what she's saying is, because the Lord has given me Samuel, I am a complete woman. She praises God for what he's done. Um, she, she praises God for being the one who will now bring justice to an unjust world. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird with strength. That is repeated so many times in the Psalms. And the bow of, of war is so metaphorical in Scripture. The rainbow itself is the bow of war aiming which direction? Up toward God himself. Right? So this is a, a stock image that she's drawing upon. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the, the ash heap. These are things that you're probably like, I've heard that before. Yeah, in like 20 Psalms and all of Isaiah. You know, it's like it's all there. And then she praises God for what he's going to do. The Lord is going to judge the ends of the earth and he'll give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed one. Literally in Hebrew, his Messiah. So there's even an element of coming kingship, which is interesting because at this point in the narrative, like there's, there's no king in Israel at all to speak of. So prophetic, looking ahead. Hannah is hopeful. And, and, and this outburst of worship, she's reflected on what God has done for her in one instance, giving her a son, and seeing that he's trustworthy to meet the greater needs that she might have, but also the greater needs of the world and bringing justice, even bringing a Messiah, an anointed deliverer. See, worship is not just about wishful thinking. It's a hopeful response that the God who has acted once will act again. That the God who has touched our lives will follow through on his promises. And that gives Hannah power. The power to real action, not just frantic busyness. And she's able to act in faith by, by dedicating Samuel to the priesthood. A single act, that single act of dedicating Samuel, that one thing she did after reflecting on all that God had done, would be far more effective in salvation history. Anointing King David, through whose line Jesus comes, right? Far more effective than if she had said, I've got to get busy. God's done all this good stuff for me. And here's a thousand ways I can help my village and do a bunch of little tiny things. See the difference? Instead of just getting busy, she, she allows herself to reflect on what God has done. And it's out of that that she acts with purpose. And I'm tempted to say that there's power in worship. But I think that that's only partially true. When we worship, even when we don't feel like it, we find we're drawn closer to the one who has power to change our situation, power to change the world itself. And while our culture tempts us into believing that action is the only way, the only way to solve our problems, Hannah is a reminder that worship, relationship with the one we worship, is key. So I want to encourage you with a little homework this week. I want to invite you, and I'll do the same thing, to honestly reflect on your relationship with God. And in the midst of our busyness, this might feel like the least productive thing you could do. But let's have faith. Let's trust that Jesus, the one who, 
who became human, who lived among us, who gave his life for us, who rose from the grave and now reigns over us. Let's, let's trust that that same Jesus wants to be in an intimate relationship with you. Not just someone we talk about or read about or do stuff for, but like, like talk to you and listen to you. You can reflect however you want, but if you want a couple of, uh, of helps, you could jot these down in your sermon notes. Here you go. Uh, you could use Hannah's song, and you could just start with the phrase, my heart exalts in the Lord because, and then you just start writing. Maybe it's some significant things that God has shown you throughout your life or throughout the last week or the last year. Take stock of who God has been for you. Or you could, you could uh, reference a psalm like Psalm 136 that goes, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who split the Red Sea, for his loving kindness is everlasting. It goes on like that for a long time. But you could just say, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. The one who... forgives me. His loving kindness is everlasting. The one who provided this, this job that I have, his loving kindness is everlasting. The one who is with me when such and such person died, his loving kindness is everlasting. The one who watches out for me, his loving kindness is everlasting. See what I'm saying? We can use these stock images like Hannah did to help us worship in our own extemporaneous, our own thoughtful way. Uh, another thing you could do, I'll just give you a third one. There's millions of ways you could do it. You could use um, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Our Father who is in heaven. Just pause right there and you could jot down, what does it mean for God to be Father to you? God, I struggle with that image. Or God, I'm thankful that you are such a good Father to me. Hallowed be your name. And you could just, each of those pieces. So you see what I'm saying? We, we can draw on scripture to help us be worshipers like Hannah. Would you pray with me? Living God, I thank you that you are a living God. That you're not a myth in a book or a philosophy that we simply study about and then try and be better people when we live here, leave here. But you desire deep and intimate relationship with us. Lord, we confess that, that it is hard for a lot of reasons. We have our own personal blocks. We, we live with our own personal shame. And we live in a culture that tells us busyness is better, that accomplishment and efficiency is better than sitting still with you. I pray for grace, Lord, to be fools for you, to be foolish enough to spend 15 or 20 minutes reflecting with you, Lord, all of the ways you have been God to us. And, and Lord, where we are struggling, I pray that you would show us ways that you want to be with us in our current situation, how you want to bring hope and renewal into our broken world that, that often uh, tempts us to despair. We thank you for your all-sufficiency, Jesus, for your grace and mercy. And that you promise to make all things new. Fill our hearts with praise. Amen.